Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Get ready, because I brought maps. I missed you guys so much last week. I took some time. I was like, man, we're going to get a map together. I've got two, and they're good ones. But before we get there, I have to just do a quick review of the last couple chapters because we're studying the book of Hebrews right now. And Hebrews can be a little bit of a confusing book if you break it up by chapters because originally when it was written, there were no chapters. It was just one long letter. And so when the chapters and the verses were introduced in order to help reference and kind of point things around, um, it was very helpful, but it also, in a way, kind of broke, broke up the arguments. And it makes it a little more confusing if we're just studying a chapter each week. So just a quick overview. The author of Hebrews has been making this point for the first four chapters that Jesus is superior to everything that this early church knew. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. And that was the argument he started in Hebrews 5. So Hebrews 5 is the beginning of this argument. Man, Jesus is the greatest high priest who's ever lived. And the audience, he anticipates their response. Well, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, so how can he be a high priest if Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah? Because we know how this is supposed to work. And so he introduces this concept of Jesus being a high priest in a different priestly order from the Levites. He introduces that Jesus is a high priest from a different order, a Melchizedek order. Now this is kind of earth shattering to the early church in some ways, but also reinforcing some common thought in other ways. But before we go there, or before he goes there, he interrupts his argument halfway through five and he brings a correction to the church. He essentially says, I'm about to blow your minds with some pretty awesome Bible ninjutsu, but you're not ready to handle it because you're still drinking milk. You're not growing as a disciple. In fact, you're at the place now where you should be teaching this stuff to other people, but I'm having to reteach it to you. So in Hebrews 6, which is what Lyle taught on last week, it was a pastoral correction, an, 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 an exhortation, if you will, that it's time to start taking some things seriously because what Christ did is a big deal. And then we get into Hebrews 7, which is where we're starting today. And in Hebrews 7, he goes back to that argument. He started in Hebrews 5 and interrupted it in, in Hebrews 6. He goes back to that argument in Hebrews 7 and he expands on it with this idea of a different priestly order through this guy named Melchizedek. But I can't just jump in where he is jumping in because it requires some background story of what he's referencing. And I told you when we started the book of Hebrews that this is a fantastic book if you want to get better at understanding the Old Testament because he's constantly referencing the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Books, things that happened in Genesis, and this is one of those examples today. So what I want to do is I want to give you a little background on his reference today. He's going to reference a text from Genesis chapter 14, and I want to read the text that he's going to reference before we get into Hebrews 7. So what I want to do is I want to show you, or I want to tell you, the story from Genesis 14 that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7 is about to reference today. So I encourage you to go and read it this week. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but this is found in Genesis chapter 14. So in Genesis chapter 14, and here's where I want you to throw up the first map. In Genesis chapter 14, we've got two main characters. You've got Abraham, and you've got his nephew, Lot. Now Abraham is living over here in this town called Hebron. Right over here, this is Israel. Now if you're kind of a modern geography kind of a guy, this right here, this is Israel. This is Egypt, you've got Saudi Arabia here, Syria and Lebanon, you've got Iraq, you've got Iran over here. 
But back in those days, those countries didn't exist. They were tribal areas. They were cities that controlled major regions. And Abraham had settled in this town called Hebron. Now his nephew, Lot, settled in the valley right over here, that's where that dot is, in Sodom. You're familiar with Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, that's where Lot was living. Well, Sodom was one of five main cities in this valley region called the Valley of Siddim. So if you just kind of like right down here in this area, this is where Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, all of these cities existed. Now, they weren't cities like we think cities today. They're cities, uh, I mean, they had some buildings and stuff, but it was more tribal kind of cities. And these five cities were under the control of four larger kings from the east. Goim, Elasar, Shinar, and Elam. Shinar is Babylon, which is not called Babylon yet. So in Genesis 14, the setting is that Abraham is just trying to live his life in Hebron, Lot is trying to live his life in Sodom, but Sodom is under foreign control. Sodom and the four other cities with him, these five here, are under foreign control by these four kings over here. And in Genesis 14, what happens is these five kings, who live right down here, have said, we've had enough of being controlled by foreign powers. We're going to rebel. No more taxes, no more trade. We don't want anything to do with those four kings. Well, guess what those four kings do? They want war. So what these four kings do, it starts with Elam. He kind of heads up this way to Shinar and Babylon, Goim and Elessar. They meet over here on the Euphrates and they march towards Sodom and the Valley of Siddim. And it's the four kings versus the five kings. That's the battle in Genesis chapter 14. And what happens in Genesis 14 is these four kings make their way down to the Valley of Siddim. The five kings, they cannot fight against these four kings because they just don't have the military power. And these four kings from the east, these guys over here, they completely stomp these guys over here. Send them into retreat. So the five kings are on the run. The four kings are pillaging everywhere. You remember when I told you that Lot lived in Sodom? In the middle of the battle, he gets captured as a prisoner. So Abraham's over here in Hebron just trying to live his life, trying to honor God and fulfill the covenant, do everything God tells him to do. And a nation battle comes to his doorstep. And it affects his own family. So what happens is, These five kings who've completely decimated this region and taken prisoners head up, they're on their way back home. They head up and they stop in this town called Hobah. Well, while they're up there in Hobah, Abraham hears that Lot has been taken prisoner and he says, all right, I'm gonna have to gather my boys and go get my nephew back. So Abraham forms a Delta team of 318 men, mostly of his servants, people that are living in his house. Imagine having 318 people living in your house. He forms this team of commandos and 318 guys go up against these entire four kings and all of their armies who has just sacked this entire region. The odds are not good But Abraham is going for his nephew. This is the kind of stuff that movies are made of, or at least it used to be. (laughs) Abraham and these men, in the middle of the night, sneak into the camp and just completely decimate these kings. Ruin them. And pillage and plunder all of their treasures. And Abraham gets Lot back. And on their way back, they stop in this little town called Salem. If you'll go to the next slide. From Hobah, Abraham 
his Delta team, Lot, they all start heading back home to Hebron and they make a stop in Salem, which will be eventually called Jerusalem. And that is where the text that Hebrews 7 references today. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 14. We're going to read just 17 through 20. Genesis 14, 17. It says, After this return from the defeat of Chodor Laomer and the kings who were with him, this was the five kings we just referenced, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And be blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything that he had just taken from those kings. Now it goes on, 21 through the rest, to talk about Sodom asking for some of the gifts. And Abraham essentially says, you you can have all of the stuff that I took. I don't want any of it. But the point that the author in Hebrews is referencing is this. Abraham, after going out and plundering these kings on the way home, the first thing he does when he meets a priest of God is he gives to the priest as a way of affirming that this victory belonged to God and not Abraham. I did have 318 guys, but they had four full armies. The odds were not good, and the reason why I have my nephew home is because God is on my side. He's the one who gave this victory, and so I'm going to give to him as a public affirmation that he's the one in charge, and he's the one who gave the victory. And what was God's response? He blessed him. Now, These four verses are the source material for Hebrews 7 that we're going to read today. And it may seem strange to weigh an entire argument in Hebrews 7 on four verses. Melchizedek is also referenced in Psalm 110.4, but he's not referenced anywhere else in the Bible. So it may seem odd to think that the author just randomly picked out these four verses to make his argument we're about to read, but... There was an archaeological discovery that happened in the 1950s that shed some light on this. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? In the 1950s, a plethora of literature was discovered in this cave in Qumran in Israel. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's entire collections of like the Isaiah Scrolls, older than any uh, text uh, that we had ever discovered. It dates back to the second temple period. When I say second temple period, what I mean is after the exile of Babylon, the people of Israel went home to Israel and rebuilt right around four or 500 BC. And that period up until the point where Jesus was born, that was referred to as the second temple period. And we found out through archeology span that there was actually a ton of stuff written that time. There was commentaries, there was new books written, uh, there was thoughts on old books written, there were multiple copies of old books written. All of this stuff just buried in a cave. And one of the things that they found was multiple references in commentaries during second temple period of this guy named Melchizedek from Genesis 14. And the fascinating thing is that most of the commentaries reference that this character, Melchizedek, would actually show up again on the scene at the end of time and be one of the men who stand before the nations and speak God's judgment over the wicked. Melchizedek. 
So this is literature that we found in the cave that was circulating at the time of the first century. So for us, it may seem like this guy just pulled these four verses out of nowhere, but we now know that this character was in all of the commentaries and they were talking about this guy constantly in the first century. The writer of Hebrews isn't making this up. He's referencing a common thought in the early church. So with that in mind, I want you to now flip over to Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to read about this widely understood text from the first century with new eyes. So let's start in Hebrews 7. I'm going to read uh, 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. All right, so now the author is referencing the text we just read, and he's going to start pulling out application from the text. This is like we're sitting here in church listening to a guy who wrote a sermon in the first century. Verse 2, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, a king of righteousness. That's what that name means. And then he is also, because of the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. Because that's what Salem means. So you've got this character, Melchizedek, who by his name is a king of righteousness, and by the king of the name of his city that he's a king over, he's also a king of peace. Verse three, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Let's pause right there. So the author is referencing this text we just read from Hebrews 14, and he's zeroing in on a few specific details. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's about to use these details to argue his point about Jesus being a superior priest to the Levitical priesthood. So just bear with me. The first point he makes is that when Abraham met this king, priest, he gave 10% of his victory. The other thing about this king is that he is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And the last thing that he draws out from this story is that Melchizedek has no recorded genealogy. That isn't to say that he didn't have a mom or a dad. That is to say that his story starts seemingly from him just kind of always being there. And there's no record of him ever dying and disappearing. And these things point to some other guy that we know that receives all of our giving and also is the king of righteousness and also is the king of peace and also has no beginning and no end. Who's the guy? Jesus. And so the author is starting to make the argument that these three qualities about this character reveal that this character was actually a type and a shadow of Jesus that this character was placed here in the Abraham story to help prepare our hearts that there would be a guy coming with credentials like this guy, not necessarily tied to the Levitical priesthood, but tied to a different priesthood that would make him qualified to not just offer one sacrifice one time, but the only sacrifice that would ever need to be offered for all time. Now, there are some commentators who look at the character Melchizedek and they think that they see that character as a Christophany or a vision or an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Melchizedek wasn't just a character that was a type of Jesus. He actually was Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't hate that interpretation. And if you hold that, that's fine. We still get coffee. Not a big deal. But when I read that and I'm reading the way that the author is talking about Melchizedek, I don't see the author of Hebrews arguing that this character was Jesus. I see him arguing that this character was a type of what was to come. So if you look at Melchizedek, you're like, no, man, that that was Jesus. That's fine. But when I'm looking at this text, I lean more towards viewing this character in the same way that I would view a David character. He was a prep or a type, or a shadow, to get us understanding what's coming. Just sidebar. 
So let's pick up in verse 4, because the author continues with these illustrations, these, these points he just made. He continues with this argument by now asking the audience to consider the implications of what we read in Genesis 14. So go to verse 4. It says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Let me read that again just so we emphasize what the argument is about to be. Do you see how great this man was whom Abraham our patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? So he says, you've got this character, Abraham, who is essentially the top of the mountain when it comes to the important people in God's family. And now we've got the guy who we think is like top dog giving tithes to somebody else that he sees as more important. He sees a guy, a priest of Salem, a king of righteousness, who is superior to himself as a father of the faith. So he's about to set up his audience. Guys, if you liked Abraham and Abraham saw the superiority of Jesus... Why aren't you seeing the superiority of Jesus? Let's go to verse 5. It says, Those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendants from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is, dis- it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. Now he's talking about the Levites. The Levites received tithes. I'll explain that in a second. But in this other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. He's about to set up this argument that mortal men are different than a guy who lives forever. And that's the precedent that Melchizedek said and that, set, and that Jesus fulfilled in the fact that he rose from the dead and he's not going to die again. So you've got these two cases of priests receiving tithes, but in one case, the priests who are receiving the tithes are guys who are going to die someday and have to be replaced by another priest. And another case of a guy receiving tithes as a priest, and he can keep receiving these tithes because he's never going to die. One might even say, is my favorite point, not verse nine, that Levi himself, the father of all the Levites, who received tithes regularly from the other tribes, paid tithes through Abraham because he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. If Abraham was the grandfather of the Levites and the Levites were inside the body of Abraham because he's the grandfather and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. In some way, can't we argue that the Levites also paid tithes to this better priesthood? Even the Levites are testifying that this is a better priesthood than the one that they served in. Now, in order to make sense of some of this, we have to kind of think through what the author is asking us to consider. In order to understand this, you have to understand the tribe structure Under Moses, there were 12 tribes. One of the tribes was called Levi, the Levites. When Joshua led the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes, into the promised land, every tribe got land, except for one tribe. Every tribe was given an area of land to farm, to grow, to fish, to do whatever you want on your family, your tribe. This is your land. Benjamin, you're over there. Judah, you're over here. Ephraim, you're over here. Manasseh, you're up here. But where does Levi live? Levi doesn't have land. Levi doesn't farm. Levi doesn't fish because Levi has one job. They belong to the Lord. And their job is to be priests to manage the presence of the Lord before the people. They manage the temple, they manage the city, the structure around the city, they manage the worship at the time of David. Their job is to manage the presence of God. So how are they supposed to feed their families if they don't get land and they can't farm if all of their attention is given to the things of the Lord? The tithe. 
The other tribes were instructed to bring a tenth of everything they grew and fished and hunt. Bring 10% of everything and bring it to the Levites and give it to them, and that's what they will live off of. Since they're focused on stewarding the presence of God for the whole nation, they need something to live off of, and they'll live off the tenth of whatever the tribes give. So this is the argument that he's using. This system of the 11 tribes tithing to the Levites so they could focus on their priestly duties was the main argument, but his larger argument is that this system existed all within the body of Abraham because he's the grandfather. So these 12 tribes, even though the 11 tribes are tithing to Levi, the 12 tribes, all of them come from the same place, which is Abraham's lineage. So in the same way that these tribes were tithing to the Levites, before the system ever set up, Abraham had the system of tithing on the inside of him because of his ancestors, and he chose to use that system to affirm something really important, and that is that there is this guy who is outside of our system that I am going to affirm is greater than any system that even God has given me. You follow? And so the argument that he's making is that Abraham, through tithing to Melchizedek, is affirming that there is something that is greater than Abraham himself and everything that would come after him, meaning all the 12 tribes and the Levites, everything that comes after him, there is something greater than himself by giving to this man Melchizedek. And he's also affirming, like I said at the beginning of the story, that God gave him the victory over Abraham, excuse me, um, uh, God gave the victory to Abraham over the four kings. So you've got these two arguments that he's making. This man, Melchizedek, is better, and God is the one who gave the victory, and because of that, I'm gonna give to this man, and what is God's response to Abraham through his giving? God blesses Abraham. Now, blessing has become kind of a dirty word in the church. And the reason why it's like that is because the word has gotten hijacked. And meaning has been injected to the word and it doesn't mean, in our minds, what it means biblically. So one of the illustrations or the points I wanna make later today is I wanna come back and I wanna touch on this blessing idea before we close, but I don't want to break this argument. So just kind of shelf that for a moment and know we're going to come back to this principle of what happens when someone who is a servant of God gives to God. What is God's response when we faithfully give unto the Lord? He responds in blessing. Now, shelf that. Let's come back to this argument that the author is making and we'll pick up in verse 11. Because what he's about to say is that even though Abraham affirmed that there was something better than the Levites, this line of thinking actually opens up a bigger can of worms. Because the Levites were established through the law, and if we're saying that there is an insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood, what we're also saying ultimately is there is an insufficiency in the law. Let's go to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, if, if it worked and we didn't need anything else, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He's about to reference David in Psalm 110, saying that I'm going to make you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, why would God have to speak that through David, that there would be a greater order through the, a priesthood through the order of Melchizedek if the, if the Levitical priesthood through Aaron was good enough? He wouldn't have had to say that, which means that the priesthood through Aaron wasn't good enough. And we know this if you read the book of Exodus. Who was the guy responsible for leading the charge to form the golden calf? Aaron, the high priest. So there was some serious insufficiencies there. 
Verse 12, for when there was a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. If God is going to bring about a change to the priesthood by becoming a priest to the order of Melchizedek, then that means that there's also going to be a change through the law because the law is the thing that established the priesthood. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord is descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe of Moses, he said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the quote from Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So if Abraham affirmed a greater priesthood, it speaks to the insufficiency of the priesthood that would come through his line, and thus the insufficiency of the law that established that priesthood, and this is why the author wants to take so much time talking about Melchizedek. Because what the author is arguing is that Christ, what he did on the cross, set aside the insufficiency of the priesthood through the Levites and the law through Moses. Because if you think about it, the entire Levitical priesthood and the entire law is designed and structured in order to keep you from God. You can't run full speed into the Holy of Holies whenever you want to. You don't get to come into the presence of God whenever you want to, whenever you need it. You've got to have a guy go for you, and it's only once a year. The entire structure is set up to keep us at a distance from our God because he's holy and we're not. But then, this greater thing came later that answered the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood and the law, this guy fulfilled the law 100% by never sinning, never breaking the law, and became a greater priest through a different order. And what is the result? The Holy of Holies has been ripped right open and anybody can run full speed into the presence of God. Before, under the old regime, you had to stay your distance. But under the new covenant, what Christ is inviting is that anybody, 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 you come and come as close as you want. Come as close, come all the way in. Come in and grab the mercy seat. Wrap your arms around it. Shed your tears on it. Weep, cry, do whatever you pour your anoint, pour your bottle of oil you've been storing up right on his feet. Just get in his presence. This is the beauty of what has been invited, or is what has been offered to us. And he spends so much time going on. This is because he's trying to argue that there is great news. We have in Christ something infinitely better than we've ever had before. So why would you even entertain going back to the old way? It's insufficient, and it's designed to keep you from the Lord. You can't get close to him the way you can through Christ. Let's finish this chapter. Go to verse 20. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So former priests were made priests through an oath, and there's also an oath here. It's the one spoken of in Psalm 110. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. But why were they many in number? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They kept dying. Man, Aaron was a great high priest. No, he wasn't. But he was a great high priest. And then he died. And what about his son? Oh, yeah, he died too. What about his son? Uh, He died too. We have a problem on our hands. Our priests keep dying. Verse 
verse 24, it says, but he, he holds this priesthood permanently. This is Jesus. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Can't say that about any Levitical priesthood member. He has no need like those other priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the, those of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, that word spoken in Psalm 110 about Christ being a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek and he is superior in two main ways. This is what 20 through 28 is arguing, that Jesus will never die as high priest, which means he doesn't have to be replaced like the Levitical priesthood, and he doesn't have personal sin to atone for, unlike the Levites. Jesus was spotless. This leaves us with a better priesthood and a better priest who is superior in every way will never die and never have to be replaced. And the one sacrifice that he made is enough to cover all sins for all time. We don't need another priest or another sacrifice. Now this chapter is written as an argument for Jesus being a better high priest. The author's goal is to argue to the early church, don't go backwards. Don't go backwards into one. Don't go backwards into what you grew up in. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the priests. That entire old way of doing things was designed to show you how insufficient our human way of reconciling the issue of sin actually is. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices you make, it's never gonna be good enough because tomorrow you have to go back and do it again. But that doesn't just speak to the temple structure, that speaks to that inner human thing where we're convinced, well, if I just balance out my, my, my life sheet where there's more good things on it than bad things, then I'll be good before a holy God. If I can just make enough sacrifices and do enough things that are good, then eventually, in some way, like the old priesthood, I can balance out my sheet and I can stand before a holy God clean because I have more good things on it than bad things. The author is arguing to the early church, that way of thinking is flawed. You'll never balance your sheet because you're starting from a deficit. You don't even know how big your debt is when you start trying to balance the sheet. Your numbers are broken. You haven't started high enough. I've got a million dollar debt. No, higher. Billion, higher. Trillion, higher. How big is this debt? Now we're getting somewhere. Every thought, literally every action that comes from an unpure place. You were born into iniquity. You can't good your way out of the situation you're in and where you're headed. But I have good news. There is a high priest that did all the good for you on your behalf, and all you have to do is put your faith in him and what he did, and your slate is clean. Don't go back to the old temple ways. Do not, on a Saturday, think you can atone for your Friday night bad decisions by going to the temple with a couple doves and just hoping that the priest will do his thing and that you'll be good if you have put your trust in Jesus as the greater sacrifice and the better priest. Now for us, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. There's, I don't know that there's anybody in here struggling with that temptation to go back. I don't know, you can even find a temple to do that. There's not a struggle to like, oh man, well, th times are tough and I'm kind of being wishy-washy. Maybe I could like go back to the, the, the old ways. Maybe if I could just kind of find what the instructions were in the Old Testament and kind of follow them, then maybe the holy God who, who wrote this will be okay with me. 
That's not the struggle that we have. The struggle we have is not that, but it is similar. The argument for the early church was, I want to go back to my old ways because that's what worked and that brings me comfort. That line of argument still stands today. Now for you, it may not be going back to the old temple, but for you, there is some old way that you are thinking worked. There is some old system, some old identity that you used to hold to that gave you some comfort. And the desire you have is to go back to that thing the moment things get tough. You grew up down on Highway 20, and those ways of doing things got you into some trouble, but also they're kind of in you, that's who you are. And so the moment someone crosses you in traffic, all of a sudden that Highway 20 starts coming out. (laughs) Am I being too specific? (laughs) There are old ways that bring us comfort because it's our old identity. But Jesus has told us that, guys, we died from that. Yes, you were born into that, but you're forgetting that you were born again. You weren't born again into Highway 20. <laughs> you were born again into something infinitely better than what, you're experience, or what, you, what you grew up into and what you experienced. So the first message to this church <clears throat> from Hebrews 7, <clears throat> don't go back. It's not the kind of identity that's going to bring you any hope like the identity that Jesus can bring you hope. That's the first thing I want us to see in Hebrews 7. There's no value in going back. There's only sadness and brokenness. You were saved from that. Don't go back to that. That's the first thing. Apologies, I'm starting to fight a little cold here. My throat's going. This is the second thing, and this is what I told you earlier that I wanted to come back to. It's rooted in this idea from Hebrews 7, 7. It was the author's original appeal in the, the beginning of the chapter about Abraham and Melchizedek. In Hebrews 7, 7, it says this, it is beyond dispute, there's no argument here, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham, after his battle, gave to God And in return, the superior God to Abraham blessed him through Melchizedek. As I said, blessing has become this kind of word where we don't want to talk about, and we oh, you say blessing, and all of a sudden, you're one of them prosperity churches, right? You want more, you got to give more. Well, that is a line of thinking that has infiltrated the church. It was really bad in the late 90s and early 2000s, this idea that there is a message from the gospel that says if you want to get more from God, you've got to give more to him. And when you give to him, he owes you, and he's going to bless you. But what that is, is it's injecting that word blessing with meaning that is not in the Scripture. And what we've done is we're just like, man, that's garbage. Like, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be a part of a church like that. I don't want to read books like that. I don't want to be affiliated with ministries like that. I'm going to run from that. And, and good on you from, for running from that. But there is an issue that in all of our running from that and not wanting to be associated with that, in some ways we have robbed ourselves of a biblical truth. And that is when God's people give to God, God blesses them. See, the moment I said it, some of you are like, I don't like that. Nah, uh, I was waiting for it. Here's the money. Yeah, now we're going to talk about the tithe. You didn't take it up at the beginning of the service. Now, I'm not talking about money. That's the illustration we see in Genesis 14, but I'm going to just leave that to the side. That's not even what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the spiritual principle that you will never be able to outgive God. 
when you give unto him, he returns with more blessing than you could have ever possibly imagined. Now this is found in Luke 6, 38, when Jesus is talking about giving. Pressed down, shaking together, running over, you guys know it. But there's also evidence in our own life because there's not a person in here who has not seen God's faithfulness work in your own individual life when you say, all right, God, I'm going to give this to you and in return, you're blown away at what he blesses you with. Let me give you an example of this because I just want to get out of your mind monetary stuff. This is not what we're talking about. This principle applies in some ways to that, but it's just so tarnished, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is you making a decision to give of things in your life like your time. I want you to think about what happens in your life every Sunday morning when you wake up and you make the decision to say, Lord, I'm going to give you this morning. What happens? How does he respond to you giving him Sunday morning? Is it not blowing your socks off every time you go to church with the friends that you meet and the camaraderie that you build and the faith that wells up on the inside of you when you see other people who are really struggling but, they, but their eyes are just fixed on Jesus and they don't want anything else but him? Are you not blessed in times of worship? Are you not blessed when we're studying the word of God? And you're like, I didn't see that before. I, I, had, I had not considered it that way before. Every time you make the decision, Lord, I'm going to give you this talent, this thing I'm good at that I know you gave me, I'm gonna give it back to you. Does he not respond by blowing away any expectation that you had thought that could happen when you used that gift for his service? Am I the only one? When you say, Lord, I'm just gonna say yes to this. Does he not just blow your mind every single time? Let's be honest for a minute. It's Tuesday night, you got a small group, it's been a rough day, none of the kids are listening. Be honest, the last thing you wanna do is go to small group. I ain't got time for this, I just, not today. Oh, somebody's. <laughs> You're like, I, I, I uh. It would be so much easier to stay home. I'm just, and it's raining out, so. But you make the decision, no, 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 no. Lord, I'm gonna give you this evening. What does he do every single time? Blows your mind. This is what I'm talking about. You've got gifts and talents on the inside of you, and if you just said, Lord, I'm gonna give those to you, I cannot explain to you what he's gonna do in return because he is a blessing God. And whatever measure you think that you're gonna give to him, you will never outgive him. The return and the blessing of being an obedient child of God, of saying this thing you gave me that I call life, I'm gonna give it back to you, you will never be able to believe the things he's gonna do through your life by just saying yes. Ten years ago, God whispered in my ear through this man named Chad Wilson when we were talking about churches and he said, I think you should plant a church with that vision God has given you. And all I did was say, all right, Lord, this one's on you. And I just want you to consider, like it's been a tremendous blessing to me to serve you. You guys are awesome people. I love serving you. But I just want you to consider all the ways God has blessed you just by one guy saying, all right, I'll give you this. Has he not shown himself faithful to go beyond whatever we could hope for or imagine. 
The argument that he's giving us from Hebrews chapter seven is just a simple, affirm that I'm doing things that are superior than anything you can do or that could come through your family line. And when you do that, I'm gonna blow your mind what will actually come through your family line because Jesus was born from the seed of Abraham. This is what I want you to consider today, that what Hebrews 7 is declaring is that there is no value in going back to the old ways of doing things What we have is superior in every way because Jesus is the greatest. And because you don't have to go back and everything that we have is what we need, you can with confidence say yes and freely give anything that you can feel that he's prompting you to and you will receive a reward that is going to blow your mind. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I feel like God's kind of just been nudging me about this. I cannot scream loud enough, say yes. And some of you is just like, man, but you don't know, this is weird. Like this is really weird. Like I'm afraid to tell anybody. I don't want to tell my wife. This would mean our whole family, this would mean all kinds of stuff would change. Look, man, I don't know what to tell you, but we've got a whole book of people who said yes to stuff that God asked of them and their whole lives are changed and we're sitting around talking about it today because their yes affected us. There is no telling who you're going to affect with that yes and what he's pleading with you today is like, just trust me. Just don't go back, just trust me right now and give me that little thing that that you've got clenched in your fist and you're so afraid you're gonna lose. Let me, let me just go ahead and break it to you. You are going to lose it. Give it to me. You're going to lose it, but it's going to come back to you in a way that you never imagined. What you're holding is petty compared to what I want to give you. So that little meager thing that you think isn't worth giving, give it and watch him blow your mind. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.